Okay, continuing on the uh, Christian family, this is part three of this series. We'll finish up next week. Let's review last week for a little bit here. What do, what do you remember from last week? Anyone? A godly woman um, knows that she's not the head or the neck. That's right. Yeah. Amen. She's not the head or the neck. And on the other side of the coin, when it comes to the man's situation with that, what does he realize by being the head? He has a greater responsibility. Yeah. A much greater responsibility. Right. It's a fearful thing. Yeah. It's not a thing to take uh, lightly. What else from last week did we talk about? Go right there. Um, wives are supposed to That's right. She submits to her husband in everything as to Christ, as if she's submitting to Christ. Her husband is the head, and the wives love their, the husbands love their wives just like Christ loved the church, serving her, laying his life down for her. What else from last week did you learn? Hello, John. Godly appeals. Godly appeals. Tell me some uh, some good characteristics of something that's a godly appeal, Brother John. else uh, from Godly Appeal anyone wants to add to that? There. Kindness is kindness. Yes, it's very kind. There's kindness in it. They, they know their place in the situation and they know that they're just adding information. Right. Amen. They know their place and they're just adding information uh, that maybe the head doesn't have so that he can make a, a better decision possibly in the situation. Not trying to be the neck in that situation. What else? What else from last week? Or Joshua? It might be okay to have broccoli in your teeth. It might be okay to have broccoli in your teeth. That's right. <laughs> as long as, as long as your husband and wife doesn't matter, that's it's, it's a big deal. Maybe it's a sign you're you're eating healthy. That's good. <laughs> Okay, what about the, the wife uh, submitting to her husband? Is that a, a, a fitting and normal thing? Yes. Yeah, so it's not an abnormal thing, as the world would try to propose to you. It's a normal thing. It's a fitting thing, as Colossians 3 says. Uh, what else did you learn from last week? Learned about the men's role. What's, what's the man's role we learned from 1 Timothy 5? Remember that? Probably that? Oh, um, I was going to say that Great. the man's role is like a, usually working in right. family. Providing, that's, that's what 1 Timothy 5 8 says. Providing, that's good, providing for the household. And the seriousness of this, the, the serious words that the Apostle Paul gave for a man who wouldn't provide for a widow in his family, let alone for his own immediate family, like his wife and his children. How. Such a person is is worse than a heathen. He denies the faith. So, uh, very serious and sober words for us to take into account there. Uh, And anyone else who's listening to the video, that uh, we're not to be lazy men. We're to be hard workers. Uh, We're to do what it takes to take care of our family. 
What about the woman's role from First Timothy Five? We're talking about these younger widows. What's what's the woman's role according to that? Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, to bear children, to manage the house. And uh, I went into the the Greek for managing the house, and I talked about Greek astronomy there. Remember what that said? Remember what the point was there? I did. It was astronomy. Yeah. So, yeah, it's astronomy. And basically what I told you was that to manage the house was the same word used that referred to a ruler planet that influences all of human life. And how managing the house is not just something that's to be looked down upon or to be think of as a simple thing. It's a very important thing, managing the house. Because you have so much influence over your children when you manage the house properly, for the good. Influence through your children over possibly the whole world. As they influence the world, and as their children influence the world, and they carry this on, this blessed family, they carry on for you know, generation after generation after generation, instead of having the, the wicked family you know, um, position where uh, you're not managing the house properly, and it carries on, and, and you're a curse for generations. And so we want to, um, you know, a lot of us come from families where it wasn't done properly. And a lot of us have broken that curse, so to speak, by beginning to do things properly. And uh, we can carry on this blessed way of life. It's the way that God tells us to. And we talked about Titus 2. Um, the conduct of older men, how they need to be an example to the younger men, the older women their admonishment to younger women. What were some of the things that the older men are supposed to be examples to when the younger men? Sorry? Sound and faith and doctrine, okay. Being a good example of what a good husband should be. Amen. And we also looked at uh, the example that the older woman should be for the younger woman and how they how she admonished them to love their husbands, love their children, to be prudent and discreet, to be pure, busy at home, uh, good and obedient to their own husband as the main authority in their life. And um, then we looked at 1 Peter 3, uh, which talks about how even if the husband is doing something wrong, that the woman will win her husband over through her silence, through her obedience, through her chaste conduct. And we also talked about adornment, which was, is interestingly enough, the Greek word cosmos, which is usually translated as world. And um, that the, the beauty of a woman should not be mainly or only outward. Now, of course, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with outward beauty. God made you. God created you. But the incorruptible beauty that will be that will not fade away is the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very impression, very precious in the sight of God. And husbands honoring their wives, and the question was, when was the last time you did this, and how are you doing this? How are you honoring your wife? How are you giving her the honor that she do by being your wife and being godly? Okay, today we're going to uh, finish up um, the godly marriage. Turn to Proverbs thirty-one. And then we're going to talk about uh, 
single, being single, and pre-marriage, and what that entails. Proverbs 31 is a very uh, often quoted thing. Not necessarily all the verses in it, but, you know, Proverbs 31 ministry, and I want to be a Proverbs 31 woman, and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to look at this for a little while, and, and uh, you can, ladies, you can have, examine yourself to see if you are a Proverbs 31 woman. And, um, you know, the Bible never tells you to be a Proverbs 31 woman. There's never a commandment to be one, but she is a good example. Okay, I'll say that. So you don't have to be doing every single thing she's doing, but she is a good example. She's a virtuous or excellent woman, as verse 10 says. Let's start in verse 10. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. So this, this wife, this kind of wife, this virtuous wife, is excellent in all areas of life. And she's very valuable to her husband. Verse 11. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so have no lack of gain. So her husband completely trusts her. This, could you say that about your husband? Husband, could you say that about your wife? You completely trust her in all things, to manage the house, to make the right decisions, to do the right things, to have good discernment and make sound decisions. Verse 12. She does him good and not evil. All the days of her life. Well, examine yourself, please. Do you do your husband good and not evil? Do you make things easier on him or harder on him? Are you making his life more pleasant or more stressful? It's a good question to ask yourself. Because if you're going to consider yourself or strive to be a Proverbs 31 woman as a Following this example you see here, you have to be able to examine yourself in light of these things to see if you're really doing the things that she was doing or even striving to do the things she was doing. Now we're going to read verses 13 to 19 together here. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it's yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good, and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hand holds the spindle. So the Proverbs 31 is a hard worker, and she makes money. She helps in that way. She does what it takes to make sure her family is taken care of properly without sacrificing the most important things, Jesus, her husband, and her children. She may lose sleep. She may lose recreational me time in the process, but she is sacrificial. She rises early to make meals for her household and make sure they're taken care of. She knows how to manage and multitask. It would be very difficult to make her stressed out. Very difficult. There are many different ways uh, for someone to make money like this Proverbs 31 woman. It doesn't mean you have to buy wool and flax. You have to knit and sew. I mean, you can do those things, but you don't have to do those things to make money. You can 
make money by being frugal, by using coupons, by looking for sales, uh, looking for good places to buy from, etc. Uh, you can make money by not being someone who always wants what you really don't need. Uh, you can make money by spending money on the right things, things that will last, things that are high quality, not buying cheap things because they're less expensive, which will break the next day. So in that way, you can make money. You can, be, you can make money by being a good steward over things you do have. That's what God expects out of you. But your husband, because if you keep on breaking stuff, who has to keep on buying it? Who has to work harder to keep on buying it? This goes back to making life easier on your husband or harder on your husband. Um, you can make money by having a part-time job from home that doesn't take away from your other more important responsibilities. You can make money by helping your husband do his work. You can make money by teaching your children a trade while they are still at home so that they can uh, help bring money and food into the household as well as be better equipped when they leave the household later on. So there's lots of ways for a Proverbs 31 woman in modern days to follow the example we see in verses 13 through 19. But you, I want you to understand, this woman is doing something to bring money into her household. I know in my life, my wife has done things like babysit to make money. Um, in the gospel track ministry, she helps out in that quite a bit. She's done things like made, make uh, coverings for women who are nursing. And so there's lots of things you can do, but I would encourage you ladies, if you're not doing these things, to speak with your husband, to pray about these things. You all have skills and abilities. So all, you all have ways you can help. And for young ladies, it would be good for you to begin this now so that when, if you do get married, you can be a help to your husband right away. So it takes some of the pressure off of him from being the sole supporter. Verse 20. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. So she helps those who are truly in need. She looks for ways. She looks for opportunities to help those who truly are in need. Verses 21 and 22. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. So her family is well taken care of. Well taken care of. She's not the kind of person who walks around in the best clothes while her children walk around in rags. She's not the kind of person who has 30 pairs of shoes while her children walk around with shoes with holes in them. She takes care of her family. Well taken care of. If anything, it'd be the other way around. Because she's very sacrificial. Verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Now while she might not be the cause of this, she's not a hinder to this either. She helps her husband to be in a place of honor and does not bring him down. He may have gotten this honor through his own efforts and through trusting in the Lord. It may have been a combination of that and her wife, his wife helping him. But for one thing is for sure, she's not hindering him or hurting him in his position of authority and being well-known in the gates. She doesn't bring shame to him. Verse 24. 
She makes linen garments and sells them. And supplies sashes for the merchants. Once again, going back to this business mindset she has. She's looking for ways to help her husband. To take care of their household. Verse 25. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. You see, just like we saw last week, her main thing is not outward beauty. Her main thing, her main clothing is not outward adornment, designer clothes. Her main, not that there's anything wrong with that, but her main adornment is strength and honor. And she will rejoice in the time to come. Because when the clothes fade away and turn to rags, and when her beauty fades away, her outward beauty, she's still going to have the inward strength and honor. It's still going to be there. That's why she will rejoice in time to come. Verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is a law of kindness. Ladies, would you say that when you open your mouth that there is kindness and wisdom? Really think about this. Now, when you talk to your husband, when you talk to your children, when you're in a frustrating situation and things are going bad, when you're having a bad day, when it seems your children are not obeying at all, you know, when these things are happening, do you still have wisdom and kindness on your lips? Because anyone can be wise and kind when everything's going right. Anyone can do that. But are you wise and kind when things are not going according to plan? When things are going against the plan? And young ladies, I mean, all these things I'm saying here to the, the married women, these are things you can strive to be before the time comes. Because I'll tell you this. When a young godly man is seeking God for a godly woman, he's looking for these kind of attributes in her, if he's wise in his decision-making. Verse 27, she watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She is not idle. As the saying goes, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Now that's not a biblical quote, but it's a quote based upon biblical principle. Ladies, beware of being idle. Things such as talking on the phone with your friends for long periods of time can often lead to gossip. Ladies, beware of spending too much time on things that don't matter. Things like Facebook. Ladies, beware of sitting around too much and doing much of nothing. Because I'll tell you, there is much to do for your husband, for your children, and ultimately for the Lord. There's much to do. Verses 28 and 29. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also. And he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Her husband and children have good things to say about her. And talk about such things to others. Could that be true of you? Obviously, I'm not referring to ungodly children or an ungodly husband who have bad things to say about you because with no justification in truth. But if someone were to sit down and talk to your husband or children, what would be the first thing they would say? Would it be good things or bad things? What would be the first thing that would come to their mind when they think of you? Good things or bad things? Patience or impatience? Kindness or anger? Verse 30. 
Charm is deceitful, and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Once again, her main and most important beauty is not outward, but fearing God. It is inward. And she doesn't have to praise herself. Others praise her. Not in the way you praise God, but giving credit where credit is due. That's what it's referring to. Verse 31. Give her of the fruit of her hands. Let her own works praise her in the gates. See, she doesn't mind getting the fruit of her hands because she knows it'll be a good reward. She knows she works hard. Her deeds, her works speak for themselves. She doesn't have to praise herself. Her work, her husband, her children, and the ones who know her best will give her the encouragement, the praise, and the credit due to her. This is a Proverbs 31 woman. I think oftentimes um, in Christendom, women like to talk about this like a catchphrase. Proverbs 31 women like to talk about it like a catchphrase. But I think that rarely a time it, there is that a woman truly examines herself in light of these things. So I would encourage you to do that, to you know, examine what I've said and read it over again. Maybe read read over with your husband and examine yourself to make sure if you're you know if you're striving to be this kind of woman, and she is a good example, she's a virtuous wife, she's an excellent wife, her work her work is far above rubies, then you need to examine yourself. It might even be good to memorize it. To uh, think about it, to meditate upon it. So you might become this excellent, this virtuous wife whose worth is far above rubies. Far above rubies. Turn to uh, Song of Solomon. Now, we're not going to get too much in the Song of Solomon. Lots of uh, intimate things being talked about here. But I do just want to talk about one verse. Just one. This one. Chapter 2 and verse 15. I would encourage husbands and wives to really just sit down and read this together. To see if you're as passionate and intimate as you should be with your spouse. Because I tell you, I mean, I can tell you from experience, when you have lots of children, you have lots of things going on, lots of responsibility, lots of obligations, sometimes that can kind of just fall to the wayside. But we need to be passionate and intimate. And just love, in a deep way, our spouse. And that shouldn't fade away. It shouldn't be tossed to the wayside. But in the midst of our marriage, in the midst of being married, there's things that like to come in and spoil sometimes. Verse 15. Catch us, the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. For vines have tender grapes. And all throughout this song of Solomon, you, you see it's oftentimes the marriage is referred to a vineyard having vines, having fruit, and um, there's things I like to come in and spoil fruit, whether it's bugs or famines. In this case, it's foxes. And so just for, just for a little bit here, I want to talk to you about some things that can try to come in as little foxes to ruin your vineyard, to ruin your marriage. These are the, and these things I'm going to talk about, it's not an exhaustive thing I'm going to talk about, but these are the most common things that can bring hindrance to your marriage. And young people who are not married would be good to think about these things before the time comes as well. The first thing I want to talk about is communication. 
Uh, turn to James 2.19, or James 1.19, I'm sorry. James 1.19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So you're slow to speak, and you're quick to hear, and you're slow to anger. Now the old saying goes, you got two ears and one mouth, you better listen twice as much as you talk. And if you do that, instead of speaking twice, saying something wrong, you have to apologize for it, and only thinking once, you think twice and speak once. Not having to apologize later on. So little problems can come out like this, it's a communication problem. I know I speak from this from experience early on in my marriage. Never assume things. Never assume things. If you think they said something that was wrong, you need to not assume and always clarify. Never assume, always clarify. Then you'll be able to communicate effectively. You want to be kind and be patient. And resist accusing. Resist accusing. Now, there may be times when you have all the facts, and you know there's some wrongdoing involved to accuse. But resist that. Resist that. Be slow to speak, quick to listen. Never assume, always clarify. And in your communication with your spouse, it's a good rule to encourage more than you correct. That's a good rule in your relationship with your children, too. To encourage more than you correct. Because guess what? Your spouse is going to mess up. I don't want to talk about sin now. I'm talking about just messing up. They're going to do things wrong sometimes. They're not perfect intellectually. They're not perfect physically. They're not perfect emotionally. Even if they are perfect morally. They're going to do stupid things sometimes. So encourage more than you correct. If someone was constantly correcting you, how would it make you feel? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So in communication, never assume, always clarify, slow to speak, quick to listen. Intimacy, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 6. Now in this day and age, if a husband does something wrong, the wife will often say, well, I'm not going to be intimate with you until you fix this problem. Use it as a bartering chip. What an ungodly thing to do. And probably just lead to more ungodliness for that man. Verse 3. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time, they may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this, this depriving yourself for a period of time, I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. So he's not even commanding them to deprive each other for a period of time. But as a concession, if it has to be done, and only with mutual consent, and only if you're giving yourself to fasting and prayer. 
Otherwise, you may be tempted. And then eventually overcome. And then sin. Now we have a greater problem. And so you don't belong. When you get married, you don't belong. Your body doesn't belong to him. Or you're one flesh. You belong to him. He belongs to you. And you ought to be treated like that way. That way. You ought to be treated that way. And give him what he needs, and you give her what she needs. For some, it's sexual intimacy. Some, it's just kissing. Some, it's back rub. Some, it's foot rub. Some, it's just a hug. Some, it's hand holding. Each person has different needs in this area. So, you need to communicate about this and give your spouse what they need. Money and finances. You need to not love money. You need to use it instead of letting it use you. You need to incur debt only if you have to. And be wise about that. And you need to be generous. These three things, and I think more than anything else, cause problems in marriage. Communication, intimacy, and money and finances. Sometimes you have no control over some of these things, like money and finances. If you don't have a job or struggling financially for it because your job doesn't pay very well, you can't really fix that problem, but you can still use the money properly and not love it and trust the Lord and not allow it to cause problems in your marriage. Not allow it to cause problems. Knowing the Lord's going to provide for you. And then there's religion. Now, there's something that most of us probably wouldn't have any problems with, but there should be complete agreement on important issues. Hopefully, this is something that was figured out long before the marriage started. On these important issues. And on the issues that uh, are minor, there be, should, should be submission from the wife on all things. As long as it doesn't cause her to sin. Say, for example, a husband decided to become a Unitarian. And her wife was not having it. Well, she's not required to submit to him in that. But she's still required to respect him and honor him and such things. I shouldn't have to believe it. That's this false teaching that could be salvational. Could cost her her soul. But she still would be submissive and respectful and honorable. And ultimately, you can't make someone believe something. You can't make them believe something. But in a complete agreement and the most important issue and submission from the wife and all minor things, as long as it doesn't cause her to sin. Another fox in the vineyard could be a lack of respect. And this goes both ways. This goes both ways. You know, we talked about this a little bit last week. Honoring each other. Not uh, One thing Brother Kevin brought up I think is really important is not to cut each other's feet off in front of the children. But to be in agreement on things. Not allow division to be caused because of the children. Because children sometimes will try to do this. They'll go to mommy, she'll say no. They'll go to daddy when mom's not around. And maybe he'll say yes. Now we have a problem. So there needs to be, a lot, there needs to be respect going both ways. The way you talk to each other, the way you treat each other, the way you honor and serve each other. There needs to be respect. Also, uh, another fox in a vineyard is bitterness or lack of forgiveness. 
So you don't want to forgive your spouse for something they did? Well, then God won't forgive you either. Very dangerous thing to be involved in, to not forgive someone who desires your forgiveness, who's repented of their sin, desire your forgiveness. If I said, don't let the sun go down in your anger, you'll wake up with a bitter tree in your heart. Deal with it immediately. If you have to take some time, hour or so apart, so you can cool down, whatever it is, but forgive immediately. Don't wait. Did God wait to forgive you? When you repented, well, then you have no good reason to wait to forgive your spouse if they're coming to you in repentance and humility. Then there's a lack of humility in admitting wrongdoing. This can really hurt a marriage. Don't let pride kill your marriage. Don't let it do it. And lastly, this is kind of a small thing, but it does especially when two people first come together, if they've done things properly and they haven't been living together beforehand. Quirks and pet peeves. Now, it's amazing how people sometimes let this affect their marriage in a negative way. Things like, you know, which way does the toilet paper go on the roll? This way or that way? You know, uh, how do you roll toothpaste? Do you roll it up or you just kind of squish it up as you go along? You know, do you... Men, do you put toilet seat down when you're done? You know, I admonish you to do that. But uh, that can cause problems. Does the bed get made in the morning or does it stay messy the rest of the whole day? You know, uh, when you cook dinner, do the pots stay into the morning in the sink or do they get cleaned right away? Um, doing laundry. Does the laundry sit in the dryer and sit in the basket or get put away? Um, Different things like this. These are just a few. You know, because when you get married, you, you've been doing things a certain way. If you haven't been living in fornication, living with them, you don't know what their life is like when they're doing these things. You have no idea about these intimate things. And so you're learning of these things as you go along. And I would encourage you to be flexible and to just get over it to some degree. And uh, give in on some of these things. And so these are some of the foxes that try to get into the vineyard of your marriage and destroy the fruit, destroy it from the inside out. Because we want good fruit in our marriage. And then once again, I would admonish you to read the Song of Solomon for yourselves and to uh, check your passion towards your spouse to make sure it's at the right level and that you're continuing on in that way. Okay, let's switch gears here for a second and go over to single people and talk about pre-marriage. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but I'm going to tell it again anyway. Um, some of you have not heard me tell this story and I think there's somewhat of an allegory here. I don't think this is the primary interpretation of verses 18 through 24, chapter 2. But I think it's a good allegory for the single life. So let's start in verse 18 of chapter 2 and read through verse 24. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was his name. 
So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there is not found a help, helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall, to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in this place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to get to his, to his wife, and he shall become one flesh. So you see here Adam's in this situation where he has no helper comparable to him. And so God brings these animals along. And he's naming animals. You know, donkey, horse, cow, monkey, gorilla, you know, whatever it may be. He's naming all the animals as they go by. And um, there's no helper found among them comparable to him. Now, oftentimes, people play this game. They start to, you know, when they get into 16, 17, 18, they start to have a desire to have a helper comparable to them, whether male or female. And uh, they go looking for one. Now, if Adam, when God was aware that he, it wasn't good for him to be alone, if Adam would have said, you know what, God? I got this. I got this, man. So to bring all the answers. Well, that one right there. I'll take that one right there. And the closest he would have found to himself wouldn't have been a donkey or a horse, would have been like a gorilla. Okay. So he says, well, that, that gorilla, yeah, that gorilla right there, she looks nice. I'm going to take her. And uh, he decides to pick the gorilla to be his mate. That's the closest he could find among the animal kingdom to be a helper comparable to him. And they get married, you know, they have a little marriage ceremony. And uh, throughout the rest of their life, they have communication problems. Because he says honey and she says ooga booga. <laughs> so they're having communication problems back where they can't communicate properly. You know, then there's this old problem where, you know, he has to pick the bugs off her back and eat them. You know. And she has she's a really hairy person. I mean, you know, not just on her head now, just all over. She's hairy, and so he, he doesn't he's not really attracted to that. And of course they can't reproduce. There's all kinds of problems with him seeking after a spouse for himself, when he first realizes, well, I don't like being alone. And that's what a lot of people do. Now, people don't search after gorillas or monkeys or apes, but they search after someone. And when they find that person, they say, well, yeah, I'll take that person right there. I like them and their finite wisdom and their finite knowledge about that person, about the situation, about themselves. They pick someone. And because they did the choosing, they have all kinds of problems. So they end up marrying someone they shouldn't have married in the first place. They have all kinds of communication problems. Problems that God could have said, you know what, that's not the one for you. Not the right match for you. Because they went searching for someone, they have these problems. Now, obviously, once someone does get married, no matter if it was the wrong decision in the first place, they're going to be married now. They're married in God's eyes. They need to stick it out to them. They need to, they're going to reap their rewards from their decisions. That's why it's one of the most important decisions you will ever make, young people. It's who you're going to marry. It'll be a decision that'll affect the rest of your life. The rest of your life. And so, Adam instead didn't do that, praise the Lord. Our great, 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 great grandmother was not a monkey or a gorilla, no matter what evolution may say. He uh, went to a deep sleep. 
God put him to a deep sleep. And young people who are starting to realize you're alone and you want to partner in life, you need to go to sleep on that area of your life. You need to say, you know what, God? I'm going to go to sleep on this. I'm going to give it to you. And when you're ready, you wake me up, you set the alarm clock off, and I'll wake up and say, whoa, man, woman, what you'll do. Because God will bring along the perfect match at the perfect time, as long as you're waiting upon him and trusting with all your heart, leaning not on your understanding, but acknowledging him in all your ways, and he'll direct your paths. Your paths. So Adam waited upon the Lord. I mean, it was kind of, it might have been forced in it. Like I said, this is an allegory. But if you wait upon the Lord, he will give you the right person at the right time. Amen. You might already even know this person. Your just eyes aren't open to it yet, and their eyes aren't open to it yet, for all you know. It may be someone halfway around the world that you've never met before. There's over 7 billion people in this world. And there's only one person who knows every single one of them. That's God. And he knows them better than you'll ever know them. He knows you better than you even know yourself. So who's the best matchmaker? You, who may know a thousand people, five thousand tops, or God, who knows seven million? You know, when I uh, first became a Christian, I wasn't taught these things. I did it. And it caused problems for me. But when I finally gave this over to the Lord, he led me to go from... I was living in North Carolina, I got saved, then I moved to Maryland, then I moved to Illinois. And God moved a, a young lady from Michigan to Illinois. She was going to school there, and I, was, I went to school there, and he brought us together. I would have never guessed I was going to marry a girl from Michigan. I would have never guessed that. And meet her in Illinois. I would have never thought I was going to live in Illinois, period. But when you trust in the Lord, he'll lead you to the right person at the right time. And he knew what he was doing. Of course, I prayed for what her characteristics would be, what she would be like. And the Lord gave me above and beyond what I even asked for. That's the way he works. So when it comes to, we're comparing basically here dating to courtship. Dating oftentimes leads to immorality. It leads to broken hearts. It leads to being used and using people. Uh, it oftentimes leads to long-term pain. It leads to ungodly attachments. It leads to uncertainty about the future when you're with that person. And it leads to peer and parental pressure. And oftentimes, even in Christian families, we see a parental pressure to get married. Let that not be said among us. Or a peer pressure from siblings to get married. Let that not be said among us. Let the Lord lead. So dating just leads to problems. That's the world's way of doing so That's the way of not trusting the Lord. Uh, well, I'll try her. No, she wasn't. Well, I'll try her. She's not the one. I'll try him. She's not the one. I'll try him. He's not the one. No, that's the way it works. That's the way God wants you to do things. I'll tell you, I wish I would have never have dated a single person. And if you ever decide to go this dating route, you'll never think to yourself, well, I wish I would have dated another person. I wish I would have held hands with that person or kissed that person. Or fornicate with that person. You're not going to think that once you get married. You're not going to think that on your deathbed. Just regret and heartache over these things. And I've been on both sides of the coin. I've caused heartache and I've been, heartache's been caused to me when I was a sinner because of these things. Courtship, on the other hand, 
is protection from immorality. There's protection there. There's boundaries. There's, there's oversight and accountability. There's prayer. And God's will is involved. Um, there's expectations and goals that are laid out. So both parties going into it know what to expect. Know what they're getting into. There's no up-in-the-air type stuff. It rarely leads to problems. Now, there are times when I think that maybe there wasn't enough prayer involved in it, and people kind of just jumped into it, and there, that can lead to problems. Even when there's no immorality, there's boundaries, there's oversight and accountability, but not enough prayer involved in it. Very important for both parties involved and the parents involved to make sure that, there's, that they're going in God's direction so there's no problems for either parties in the end. And of course, there's no peer pressure, no parental pressure in these situations. Because God's will is involved. Not a person's will, but God's will. But before you even get to that point, young people, you have to figure out whether God wants you to be married. Turn to Matthew 19, verse 12. Unfortunately, in today's day and age, even in Christian circles, marriage is assumed. Well, it should not be so. Marriage should not be assumed. I would say that in more uh, more times than not, there's marriage involved. God's, God's will for marriage. In Matthew 19, 12, after Jesus set out all the rules for marriage, and disciples were saying, man, it's better not to marry. This is the way these things are. And in verse 12... Jesus addresses it. He says, For there are eunuchs who are born thus from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So there are those people who from their mother's womb is not God's will from married. There are some who are made physical eunuchs, which means basically they're not able to be married. And there are those who give themselves to the kingdom of heaven's sake and don't get married. It says, he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So there has to be an ability there. Not everybody has this ability. We all have the ability, we all have free will. But not everybody has the ability from God to live a whole life without being married. Now, oftentimes, young converts in their zeal, they'll say, well, I'm going to be this person. Well, be careful now. Be careful now. You're not the one who chooses this. God gives the ability or not. You can seek God and maybe he'll give you the ability. But you just simply need to seek God's will. If it's his will if you're married, you need to be married. If it's his will to be, for you to be a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake, that's what you need to do. That's really all there is to it. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7. We saw, see Paul talk about this a little more. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 7 through 9. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. He wasn't married. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them to remain, if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But there's an ability there. 
And God will give you, if you're supposed to be married, God will give you the ability to refrain and to be holy until it's his time for you to get married. So not everyone has the ability to remain as Paul was, even though he said it would be good. Now there's also other things to consider. We see later on in the chapter, uh, verse uh, 26, he's talking about virgins, those who have never been married. I suppose, therefore, that it is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loose from life? Do not seek a wife. So he's saying it's good because of the present distress, this persecution they were going through to remain as you are. And we looked at this many times before. You can go back to Matthew 24 and see that in the last days, woe to those who have babies and who are nursing. Woe to pregnant women. It's going to be very difficult in the last days when you're running from persecution. To not to be concerned about little children, especially ones you're nursing. I mean, if you're not able to eat much yourself, how are you going to nurse your baby? There's not going to be baby food sitting around. There's not going to be formula. So it's a very serious thing to consider. And he says uh, also later on, he says um, in verse 28, he says, But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, that I would, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, that from now on, even those who have life should be as though they had none. And then he goes on to say in verse um, 32, he says, But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of this world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord. That she may be, may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put it a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. So he's saying, listen, you can get married or not get married. I'm not saying you have to go either way. But if you don't get married, I save you distress, I save trouble, I save you from having children in the midst of persecution, and I save you from having, being distracted between the Lord and your spouse. And ultimately, between the Lord and your children, and your spouse. Now, he's not saying it's an ungodly distraction. It's a good distraction to have. A man who finds a wife finds a good thing. Okay, He just tells them the straight-up facts. Because when you have a wife, you have to pay attention to her. You have to serve her and take care of her. If you have a husband, the same thing. If you have children, both of you, the same thing. Or if you're single, you don't have those things. You have more time on your hands. So a single man, a single woman will be, have, be more responsible for God, before God, by how they use their time. Because they have much more of it before God. Matthew 6.33. In this context, it's talking about uh, not worrying about the things you need. And in verse 33, it says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Now, it doesn't mention marriage in this passage. It doesn't mention food and clothing and those things. But some people do need to get married. For some people, it is a need. And like I said before, you don't need to seek after a spouse. You need to seek after God, who is the matchmaker. And I like it in my mind to this. You have a person over here and a person over here, and they're both seeking God. And as they continue to seek God, all of a sudden they come together and they serve God together the rest of their lives. 
That's the way it should be. Okay? That's where your mindset should be. Not seeking after a woman or a man, but seeking after God. You know, some of you may not know this about me, but I was actually engaged one time before. Before I was engaged to Angela and married her. I was a very new Christian. In fact, I started dating her before I became a Christian. She said she was a Christian, but we were fornicating while she said she was a Christian. And uh, we got engaged. After I got saved, we stopped doing those things. But she kept trying to seduce me and do the same things we were doing before I got saved. And um, eventually I broke up with her. The Lord made it very clear to me that she wasn't the one for me. So I broke up with her. And um, eventually I moved. She was living in Maryland. I was living in North Carolina. I was in the Army. I moved back to Maryland and I saw her one time. And I actually had sent her a book about dating and how to go about it biblically, because I wanted to help her, even though we had broken up. And I saw her, and I had heard uh, from her friend that she was getting married. And this is like probably ten months after we had broken up. I thought that was kind of strange. So I asked her a hypothetical question. I said, I said, now, you, I heard you're getting married. Yeah, I'm getting married. Well, if I were to take you back right now, would you, would you have me back? She said, well, if you'll marry me, I will. And I said, you don't see a problem with that? I said, do you love this guy? She said, well, I deserve to be married, is what she said. And she said, there's some people who just are infatuated with the idea of marriage. They're infatuated with the idea of love. Above and beyond being infatuated with God. And therefore, he gives you what you need. And you continue to be infatuated with him. Together. Some people are just messed up in that way. In Song of Solomon chapter 2 and verse 7, there's three times the woman says this. The Shulamite woman. Song of Solomon 2.7. Song of Solomon 3.5. And Song of Solomon 8.4. Now, I don't think there's anything else in this book that's said three times exactly the same way. So it must be pretty important. 2.7. 3.5 and 8.4. Exactly the same every time. I'm just going to read one account of it. She says, and every time she says, it's right after she's like, she's loved, she loves him, she's passionately in love with him, and she's missing him for some reason. And she says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Some people stir it up, man. They just stir it up. They think about it over and over. Oh, he's cute. Oh, she's nice. You know, just think about it. Oh, they're consumed with these thoughts. They're consumed with the idea of this person. They're fantasizing in not an ungodly way, even, but just fantasizing, continuing to think about it, and they're letting their mind be plagued with it. Do not arouse or awaken love until so desires. Until it's the right time. And for many, it's not the right time. But until it's the right time, do not stir up. Not meditate upon it and think about it over and over again. So you're, eventually, you're going to end up making, if you continue to that path, you're going to make a bad decision based upon that. Not upon the truth, not upon God's will, but upon that. So do, not, do not stir up, do not awaken love until it so desires. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Now we're going to talk a little bit about someone who's possibly in a courtship or considering a courtship. How things are to go. 1 Corinthians 7 1. 
Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, this is specifically referring to someone never getting married. But I think the principle applies to someone who is not currently married. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, I didn't have such high standards when I was engaged, when I was courting my wife, when we got before we got married. But just because I didn't, or just because your parents didn't, doesn't mean you shouldn't. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's good for you not to hold hands. It's good for you not to kiss. It's good for you not to hug, even if it's a side hug. It's good because that can stir up stuff before the time is right. It can stir up stuff that don't need to be stirred up. Now, I'm not saying if someone um, hugs or holds hands that they've necessarily sinned if they're not married. But I'll tell you what, they're taking chances that they shouldn't be taking. You know, 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says this, abstain from every form or appearance of evil. You know, when I see someone holding hands, I automatically think one of two things. I'm not saying this is necessarily true of them. This automatically comes to my mind, though. Either they're married or they're fornicating. Those are the first two things. Because they're being so extravagant in their touch in public. What are they doing in private? What are they doing in private? Ephesians 5.3 But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints. Let it not even be a hint of it among you. You know, don't, uh, Ephesians 4.27 is talking about anger here, but it applies to every sin. Nor give place to the devil. Don't give the devil a foothold. Anytime I think about that, I always think about this thing me and my sister used to do when I was younger. I would chase her around the house as an ungodly brother. I'd want to do something mean to her. And she, I was, I was going to put a lot stronger than her. And she'd run to her room and try to shut the door before I got there. She shut the door and she could lock it. She knew I couldn't get in. But if I got my foot in there and shut the door on my foot... Guess what? I'm barging right in now. You got no way of stopping me. And so don't give the devil any kind of foothold when it comes to your courtship. Any kind of toehold. Because he'll come barging right in if you do. He will. He'll take whatever you give him and he'll run with it. And of course, Romans 14 23 talking about sins of conscience. If anything's not of faith, it is sin. So if you can't hold hands in good faith, if you can't hug in good faith in your courtship, then you shouldn't be doing it. It's not from faith. It's not from faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says to flee, this is verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So you've got to flee it. Some people, some professing Christians, they just want to, well, tell me where the line is, and I'll just walk as close to the line as I possibly can. No, you need to flee it. Run away from it. Get as far from it as you possibly can. You know, if I told you that there was going to be an atomic bomb blowing up, and here's the area it's going to affect, would you go as close to that edge as you could? 
Well, that's what it's like when you're a young person and you see someone you want to marry. It's like having an atomic bomb in you. It's going to blow up. And you stay as far away from that danger area as you possibly can. So you don't get affected in a negative way. So who should you look for when it comes to uh, to marriage here? Let's go to Matthew 10, 47. What are some of the characters that you should find in this person? So when it comes to fleeing sexual immorality, what that means, practically speaking, is you. I don't think you would touch each other, first of all. Second of all, you'd have no alone time. Third of all, there'd be boundaries and accountability. That's what it means, practically speaking. Now, I had a young man who I, who I know who is a Christian. I saw him at Kroger recently in Bowling Green. And uh, he introduced his girlfriend to me. They were by themselves. Now, according to his profession, I believe him. They haven't done anything immoral. But that's not the point. The point is they're giving the devil a foothold and admonish him against it to not do it. But who should you look for in marriage? Matthew 10, 47 says this. I'm sorry, 10, 37. Yes, thank you. He who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And then Luke 12, sorry, Luke 14, 26. Luke 14, 26. Jesus said, If anyone comes to me, does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. So, first and foremost, the person who are you are looking to marry should love God more than they love you. If they can't say that, if they're saying, like, you're in my world, well, I can't live without you. This is some dangerous things to say. No person should be your world. God is your world. God is your everything. God is your all. You need to find someone who loves God more than you and won't be infatuated with you. Now let me explain to you what infatuation means. Foolish or all-absorbing passion. Now our infatuation with Christ is not foolish, but it should be all-absorbing. But you should never be able to say that about someone else. I have a foolish or all-absorbing passion for them. Ladies, you want to know how your future husband, your potential future husband will treat you? Observe how he treats his mother. Observe how he treats his mother. Does he respect her? Does he honor her? Does he lift her up? Young men... You want to know how your potential future wife will treat you? Observe how she treats her father. Does she respect him? Does she submit to him? Does she honor him? That's the way it will be. It's not going to change overnight like that. She treats her father wrong. If he treats his mother wrong, it's not going to, it's not going to magically change overnight when you get married. But the ring going on his finger is going to make him change like that. You better make sure he's going to be the right way and she's going to be the right way before you jump into it. In 1 Timothy 5.2, we see Paul admonishing Timothy how to treat women. 
First Timothy chapter five, verse two. He's uh, admonishing him how to treat. He says, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. Of course, it would go the other way around for women, for girls. Older men as fathers, younger men as brothers. And see, friends, one thing we need to get is that I, I talked about this the first week, is that if you don't get the main reason for marriage and family is to make sure you marry Christ and are a part of his family forever, you're, you're not getting marriage. You're not getting it. And so, you need to treat your future spouse as a brother or sister in Christ. Ultimately, that's what they'll be for all eternity. They won't be your spouse for all eternity, but they will be your brother or sister in Christ for all eternity. And that's what a marriage is ultimately based upon as a foundation being brothers and sisters in Christ and serving God together. And literally, your spouse should be your best friend, besides Jesus. They should be your best friend. If you can't say that about your future potential spouse, then you can see, well, I can see myself being best friends with him or her. Then there's probably something wrong. So ultimately, marriage is this marriage that you may be joining into uh, is not the end. That both of you being brothers and sisters of Christ until the end is what really matters. That you both marry Christ. Turn to Proverbs 7 with me for a second. I want to give some admonitions to the young men here. Proverbs 7. Starting in verse 1. I'm going to read through it, men. Young men, and I want you to just listen to what it says and think about these things and make sure you're not allowing yourself to become like this young man talked about here. Proverbs 7, 1. My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live. And my law is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on a tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call understanding your nearest kin. That they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. For at the window of my house I looked through to my lattice, and saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths, a young man devoid of understanding, passing along the street near her corner, and he took the path to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night, and there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot, and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. Oh, you don't want to be that woman. You don't want to be that woman. At times she would she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him with an impudent, a shameless face. She said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows. I'm a Christian. So I came out to meet you, diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. I have sp uh, spread my bed with tapestry, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him and will come home on the appointed day. With her enticing speech, she abused, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately he went after her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, 
or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till an arrow struck his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it cost him his life. Now therefore listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. Young man, I would encourage you, even until the day you get married, to meditate upon this scripture. Because in this day and age, uh, there's lots of crafty women out there who have enticing speech and flattering lips, who wear great perfumes and nice, you know, clothes, and they have the attire of a harlot, they're dressed modestly, and they want to entice you. And they'll say things shamelessly, like, I have peace offerings, like, I'm a, I'm a Jew, I have, I have peace offerings, I've brought them with me, I've paid my vows. So I've come out to meet you. And they'll want to entice you. But in the end, it'll lead to death. Spiritual death, at least. Because her house is the way to hell. Descending to the chambers of death. And of course, single men aren't the only ones. Married men are not immune to this. It's still there. The devil would love to destroy your godly marriage. He'll destroy it from the inside out. So be careful. Be careful, men. Of course, the woman, we want to be careful not to be this kind of woman. There would be a godly one who will not cause her brother to be enticed unnecessarily by the way she's dressing or the way she's carrying herself or the way she's, what kind of perfume she's wearing. You know, when I was a, I said, new Christian before I met Angela, the Lord was convicting me about a lot of things. I didn't have anyone teaching me these things. The Lord was convicting me about a lot of things. I used to wear uh, cologne sometimes. I would, uh, you know, put gel in my hair and make sure I was always dressed real nice. And The Lord convicted me. He said, what kind of woman are you going to attract like that? That really hit me hard. And so I ditched that stuff. And, uh, praise the Lord. He gave me a godly wife. I don't think those things would have attracted her. So we ought to watch uh, the way we carry ourselves. What kind of person are we going to attract? What kind of person is going to be attracted to us? If you attract someone simply with your outward beauty or with your smells or with your flirtatiousness, you're probably going to get a bump probably going to get a bum. But when those things fade away, he won't be around very much longer. Same thing with the men. What kind of person you're attracting by the way you're carrying yourself? Think about that. Here's some admonitions I want to give to you. Ladies and men, value your future spouse's character above their charisma. Value their character above their charisma, above their bubbly, exciting personality. Value their character above their charisma. Value their mind above their money. Money makes life comfortable, sometimes. But Moth and Russell destroys these things. Value their mind above their money. Value their present above their past as long as their past truly is in the past. Value their present above their past. If my wife valued my past above my present, she would have never have married me. 
I have a wicked past. So as long as their past is past, value their present above their past. Value their hard work ethic above how handsome or beautiful they are. Value their hard work ethic above how handsome or beautiful they are. Value your future spouse's love for the Lord above how much they love and adore you. Is here's a here's a good test. When you begin to court somebody, does that person spend less time with the Lord or more time with the Lord? Are they sacrificing their time with the Lord to spend time with you? Or are they sacrificing time spent with you to spend with the Lord? Notably, are you spending time together with the Lord? Of course, not alone, not in the courtship. Then there's making the decision. We don't want to be unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 7, 39, talk about these things. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 7, 39, talks about not being unequally yoked. And I want you to picture this in your mind. You have two cattle. They have a yoke over top of them. One cattle is stronger than the other cattle. If this cattle pulls this way, where is this one going to go? Going to go with it. Unless they eventually break the yoke. So you don't want to be unequally yoked. If you, if you marry someone who's not a Christian, this is common sense stuff, but I think I need to talk about it a little bit. If you marry someone who's not a Christian, they're going to end up probably pulling you down. And so you're sacrificing your relationship with the Lord for a person. Now think about that. For a person. You're sacrificing the person for a person. Very dangerous thing. So you don't be unequally yoked. And of course, you want to uh, be in agreement on important things. Things like your calling in life. If God is calling you to stay in breeding Kentucky, and God is calling your future potential spouse you're courting, or you're thinking about courting, to go to Africa to be missionary, it's not a match. I don't care how many other things match. It's not a match. If you really are convinced that's the way it's supposed to be. I'm going to be in Britain. You're supposed to be in Africa. Well, guess what? We can't be together. That's all there is to it. Children. You know? How many do you want to have? If your wife wants to have one or you want to have ten, there's a problem. You probably ought to figure that out ahead of time. Before you get in marriage and have all kinds of problems. Also, how you're going to raise your children. How you're going to discipline them. You know, Amos 3 3 says, How can two walk together unless they agree? So, this would be agreement on these major things your calling in life, children, your roles in marriage. Of course, there should be biblical, godly roles in marriage. But you need to make sure that these are down to a T. You know, they might make it simple. These things might be simple if you marry someone who's been in the same fellowship with you for years, but if you marry someone who's not in the same fellowship as you, who lives halfway across the world from you, these things would be hammered out to make sure you're in agreement on these things. Intimacy. Now, we've talked a lot about uh, not allowing the beauty, our beauty affect your decision, but guess what? There should be physical attraction. There should be that. Not that it should be the main thing, but there should be physical attraction between the two. There should also be uh, forgiveness over past sins. 
We all got them. We all got them. And if your future potential spouse can't forgive over your past sins, what's going to happen when they sin against you presently? If they sin against other people in the past, and they're not willing, you're not willing to forgive them of that, then what's going to happen when they sin against you? If that happens, you're going to have even more problems. How to handle money? We'll talk about that a little bit, and other expectations. That's why it's always good to go through premarital counseling. It's always good to go through something like that, not to rush into things. Can the man support the woman? It's a very important thing. We talked about that. You have to be able to support the woman. If you can't support her, you probably shouldn't be marrying her. Ultimately, there should be a loving of your potential future spouse before you even meet them. I want you to examine some of this to people. Think about this. If your future spouse was looking down upon you and was able to see what you were doing, what you were saying, what you were thinking, how you were acting, how you were living 24-7, would they, could they say that you were loving them? Even now, before they even meet you, before they get married to you. Flip it around. If your future spouse was doing what you were doing, saying what you were saying, thinking what you were thinking, and you were looking down upon them 24-7, could you say about them that they were loving you? That they were loving you as their neighbor before they meet you? In their interactions with the opposite gender? Could they say that about you? Good question to ask yourself. And then finally, I think there needs to be Objective confirmation from objective sources. Uh, wise people who know God, who know His voice, and have been there, done that. Proverbs eleven fourteen says this: When there is no counsel, the people fall; but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs fifteen twenty two. Without counsel, plans go awry. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. Oftentimes, when two people are praying, whether they're one for the other or not, and they have no other people involved in giving biblical counsel, and other people involved in providing accountability, they've not been immoral at all, they've not sinned against each other at all, not sinned in that way, but just two people praying for the other, feelings can get in the way. Emotions can get in the way. Judgment can be... Not as good as it should be. So you need to get other people involved. Of course, in this fellowship, I'm sure you can get your parents involved. But even parents can be subjective at times. So it's good to get even more counsel involved. Trusted counsel. Wise counsel who's been there. Not just any counsel, but wise counsel who's been there and done it. And who knows what the standards are regarding it. To make sure things go the way they're supposed to go to make sure this actually is God's will. Sometimes, I tell you, it's happened to me when I was an early Christian. I thought maybe she's the one for me. And she wasn't. Just my feelings. That's all it was. I was attracted to the way she was. Not just her physical attraction, but she was a godly woman. But it wasn't God's will. When you seek out God, the counsel is confirmed. 
Because when godly counsel is involved in this objective godly counsel, the devil's not going to fool them. He's not going to fool them. You know, in my marriage, um, I was seeking God on my wife. And, uh, you know, I know the devil. I knew what he had done in the past to fool me. And I just, my feelings towards her, I rebuke him, rebuke him. And well, this is not, you know, I'm, I'm not going to submit to this. And I'm not going to play this game again. But I continued to pray about it. And then I sought God to counsel on it. And God confirmed several times that she was the one I was to marry. Several times. From people who are very objective and who are praying for us before I even asked them to pray for us who knew it was God's will before I even asked them if it was God's will or not. And that's how God works sometimes. Well, it's not a hard and fast rule, but I'll tell you, you're a lot more safe getting godly confirmation from godly objective sources than you are relying on yourself and someone else who has feelings for you. And so as we, we review these things, I, I think a lot of these things that um, were spoken about the marriage could also apply to people who are not married, as they possibly prepare for marriage. And so, ladies, I would encourage you to review Proverbs 31. That's what you're striving to be. Husbands and wives, don't let this foxes get in your vineyard and destroy your fruit. And singles, make sure you're seeking God and being infatuated with Him. Now with a person. And he will guide you. He will direct you. He will guide your steps. And be submissive to your parents. They say they're wise. They've been there. They've done it. They know what they're talking about. Even though you may think you know it all sometimes. As young people do. Sometimes. Uh, oftentimes I found out later on I didn't know what I was talking about. And I was a young person. Okay, well we're going to stop there. And uh, open up the floor for questions, objections, or things anyone wants to add. So it was it was regarding the um, the being eunuch uh, right. or First Corinthians seven talks about a gift, right? One having the gift. Um, in Matthew nineteen, the Lord says He speaks of those who made themselves eunuchs, right? Um, made themselves eunuchs, and so. It seems to be that, of course, as you said, there's free will involved in that. Um, is 
does this mean that, because uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, it speaks of it as a gift, mm -hmm. but then he also says, but even if you do marry, you have not sinned. Right. Um, would this be a, a gift um, to where the, the one who has this a gift would have the choice to whether they want to walk in that gift or not and it not be sin? say there's a there's a young man who who God gives this gift to he has a choice to yeah. not make himself a eunuch and marry and it wouldn't be sin yeah I would agree with that okay yeah okay yeah. Amen. yeah that's what I was I actually have a friend when I was uh, in Louisiana who he thinks that was his case really that he wasn't supposed to be married but he he got married anyway and you know he was dealing with it but he, he thinks he definitely could have dealt with it no problem at all okay. So, and I would, like Paul said in First Corinthians, you combine all the scripture together. It's not a sin if you choose to marry anyway, right? So, so it could be the case that someone has this gift and then they they don't they don't walk in it, right? And it wouldn't be yeah. wouldn't be sin, right? My other question I had is it looks like in First Corinthians uh, seven, eight, and nine, it seems to be and you could you could tell me your thought on this is right. is that referring to um, others who don't have the gift but I say to the unmarried he speaks to the one who has the gift but I say to the unmarried and to the widows it is good for them if they remain even as I am but if they cannot exercise self-control let them marry it's better to marry than to burn with passion would that be implying that's that's those who don't have the gift that they could if they choose to uh, not marry? Yeah, I think it's referring to people who maybe are not sure if they have the gift or not right. and figuring out whether they have the gift or not. So could it be that someone doesn't have the gift, they could, as a fruit of the Spirit, exercise self-control and choose to not marry? No, I, I, I think it's saying that if you're figuring out whether you have the gift or not, okay. if you have the gift, then you will be able to exercise okay. self-control and not do it. But it says right here, if you burn, right. it's better for you to marry. Right. Yeah. So it's going to depend upon the person. And um, I'm not even saying, like, God is predetermining these things. You, you could possibly seek after God for it. My only admonition and warning with that was someone who gets overzealous and God's not going to give them the gift because it is his will for, for him to be married, and then he's burning. Right. And he's got a problem. So I liken the people who, uh, who say they want to die for the Lord. You know, they're real zealous about that. But then when the time comes, it's more difficult than I thought it was. You know, it's good to be zealous, uh, but to have zeal with wisdom. Yeah. Amen. Anybody else? Crazy. Yeah, I would uh, agree with all of that. And I would also add on to that that I think uh, Paul is just addressing to those who are not married yet. And, you know, there's a situation where you don't have the gift and you're not married yet, that's not saying that you should uh, live the rest of your life and never marry, but there might be a situation, I, I believe there was a situation in my, my life, where I just had to wait on the Lord and wait on His timing, and I had to go through a period of several years <coughs> of being type of eunuch for the kingdom of God for several years, uh, using self-control, relying upon the Holy Spirit, relying upon Jesus Christ, through several years of being like a eunuch type lifestyle until the timing was right 
and that the Lord would lead the right person into my life. So I think that whenever Paul's talking about that, uh, he says, it's better to be like me, but if you have passions, then you know you should get married. But obviously, not just seeking out your own uh, solution, uh, but just waiting upon the Lord, seeking the Lord. And the Lord knows the right time to bring someone into your life. Not just the right timing for you, but also the right timing for that other person. So there's a lot of factors involved. Yeah, that, that makes sense because, like you said, that's a time where you're you're figuring out whether yeah. you are going, to, whether God's going to give you that gift. Right. Or you're going to have that because you have to, through the Spirit, one of the fruits is self-control. Right. So you're yeah. going to have to exercise self-control anyway. Like you said, for a period of time, you're going to have to exercise self-control. Right. And at some point, you're going to realize if you have the gift. Right. Then you will continue in right. it in a extra special way of self-control. Right. right. That is beyond you. It's an ability that God gives you because yeah. he's called you to that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, whether he called you to that without you seeking him about it, yeah. or whether you sought him for it, he said, okay, I'm going to give this to you. Yep. I want you to be this way. That's right. So you shouldn't predetermine either way. No. Like <clears throat> That's what I'm saying. You should always you should seek the Lord about these yeah. things. It never should be assumed that you're going to be married. You should never decide on your own, out of your own zeal, without wisdom, I'm going to be a eunuch. It should all be sought after for God. And I, I think, like, Tracy's situation, I mean, he went through it for years, but after, just about every young person to go through that for a period of time. You know, there's nothing, I, I can't think of anyone who, as soon as they felt this aloneness and started to burn, that they got married away. Right. Rarely ever happens that way. There's going to be a period of time of self-control just about anybody. Exactly. And then we're called to walk by the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the lust of flesh. Right. So that's something that is for every Christian. Yeah. So during that time, it's good because you're learning to walk in the Spirit in a, in, a, in a way there where you exercise self-control. Yeah, it's not giving any kind of excuse to anyone who is burning to, to give into it by any means. But if God has called them to marry someone and they're burning and they reject that and choose to remain a eunuch when God has not called them to that, now they're having problems that they brought upon themselves. So, what's up? Just a little clarification. Yeah. When we have uh, the issue of men making men eunuchs, that's an actual physical issue. Yeah. And yes. when we're called to be eunuchs for yeah. Christ, that's not a physical issue. That's right. That's that's correct. Yeah. I mean, this probably still happens to this these days. But a eunuch is, is a male who had his reproductive parts chopped off, and he can't he can't be married at this point in time. So um, he was made a eunuch. And uh, because he was made unique by men, God will give him the grace he needs to continue in that and be holy and be godly uh, if he becomes a Christian. The eunuch on the way to Ethiopia, you know, he will talk to him. So there's situations like that, unfortunately, that where men do ungodly things to other men and has to be dealt with. But um, 